Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Yordana Osband, here with my friend and Chavruta Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masach Megillah, daf Chav Zion, page 27. Um, a lot of stuff on this daf and a pretty long daf. Just want to remind people before we deep dive uh, to sign up for our Seum that is upcoming, um, God willing, in about a week. Uh, so if you haven't done that yet, please join us. Uh, please consider sharing some Torah if you want. Um, and we look forward to seeing all of you and completing another Masachet together, God willing. Um, so the Gemara here is going to get into a discussion about selling uh, Torah scrolls, right? And the Mishnah basically told us that if you sold a Torah, say for Torah, you can't use it to purchase scrolls of uh, Nevi'im or Ketuvim. So they want to know, or basically the dilemma is raised here. What about a case where you want to sell an old Sefer Torah, meaning a Sefer Torah that no longer can be used in order to buy a new one? So there's two ways to look at this, basically. The Gemara presents two possibilities, right? The first is, is because the proceeds, right, the sell of the, from the sale of the old Torah scroll are not raised to a higher degree of Kedusha, it's prohibited, right? We could argue it just stays equal. You go from old Sefer Torah to new Sefer Torah, right? Or because there's no possibility, you can't raise it to anything higher, right? There's nothing higher basically than a Sefer Torah, right? Then we'll permit it, right? We'll allow, you know, so basically what we would allow is is lesser to higher for any type of sale, or we would allow equal to equal. And that would be the case of an old Sefer Torah to a new Sefer Torah. So they're first going to attempt to try to resolve this, Toshma, of a machru Torah lo right? So they say here, they teach here, if they sold a Torah scroll, you can't purchase other scrolls, right? Svarim hudalo ha sefer Torah v'Torah shafir dami. So we can infer from this teaching, right, from the Mishnah itself, since it only says you can't buy other scrolls, you can't buy purchase Nevi'im or Ketuvim, it must mean that buying a Torah is okay because it didn't aser a Torah. Matnidan da'avid kika mebaile lechatzchila. So the Mishnah, when it talks about this, you know, maybe this is maybe this halacha, right, applies only after the Torah scroll was was sold. But maybe it really right, and that in other words, that in a case where the but but this would only be in a case where the proceeds were used to purchase another Torah scroll. But the question that we want to know is Lichatzhila, can you do this? In other words, let's say you went ahead and purchased it. Okay, so based on this Mishnah, we could justify that it would be okay. But let's say you want it from the outset. You want to say, hey, I have an old Sefer Torah. Now I want to buy a new Sefer Torah. That's really what the question is. They don't feel that the Mishnah gives enough of a strong proof. So now we'll have another Toshma. So I also want to use this as sort of an example, Gemara, of like, what's the process here, right? They have a question. And so they're going to sort of try to go through, like, here's a Tanaitic statement. Here's a Tanaitic statement. Can we make any of them support one of the two sides that we just presented? So now we have another one, which is the following. Gogolin Sefer Torah b'mitpachot chumashin, v'chumashin b'mitpachot nevim ketubim. So a Torah scroll can be rolled up basically in a wrapping of the cloths that are used to wrap one of the one of the five books, right, of the Torah. And, 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 and those scrolls of the five books can be wrapped up in, in cloths that were used for scrolls of the um, of nevim and ketubim. But a scroll of the Navi or the Navim or Ketubim cannot be used, right? Cannot be wrapped 
in the wrapping cloths of one of the five books, one of the Chumshei Torah. Below Chumashim, but Mitpachot, Sefer Torah. And a Chumash, right, one of the five books, cannot be used in the wrapping of a Sefer Torah. Katani Mihat, so we say, okay, so let's explain what this is here, right? This is what this Bryce is teaching us. Golalim Sefer Torah, but Mitpachot Chumashim. So we learned a Torah scroll can be rolled up in the wrapping cloths of one of the five books, right? Only in the wrapping cloths of one of the five books, but to roll up in the wrapping cloths of a Torah scroll, of another Torah scroll, it seems like it's no. So what this seems to be implying is it's saying, it seems to say you can only wrap a Torah scroll up with one of the scrolls of one of the books of the Bible, but not Torah scroll, right, to Torah scroll wrapping. So this would seem to imply that you cannot do old Torah to new Torah. Ema Sefa, right, but now they're going to reject this. They're saying, wait, this isn't true because this latter clause, right, which teaches, uh, you know, which teaches, and, you know, one of the five books may not be wrapped in the wrapping of a Sefer Torah, Hot Torah for Torah Shepherd Dummy. Maybe this seems to apply. Torah wrapping to Torah scroll is okay. So it says, okay, we can't really uh, learn anything from from this one because this it, it doesn't seem to make sense, right? So now they're going to bring another proof. Toshma. Manichin Sefer Torah al Gabe Torah. The Torah al Gabe Chumashim. The Chumashim al Gabe Nevim Ktubim. Avalo Nevim Ktubim al Gabe Chumashim. Below Chumashim al Gabe Torah. So now we have another brysa. A Torah scroll, right, can be placed on another Torah scroll. A Torah scroll can be placed on one of the five books. One of the five books can be placed on a scroll of Nevi'im or Ketubim, but Nevi'im or Ketubim can't be placed on top of a Torah scroll, right, on top of one of the five books, excuse me, and one of the five books can't be placed on, on a Torah. So this seems to be, since you can place a Torah on a Torah, you should be allowed to buy, right, old Torah with new Torah. Right. And so the Gemara is now going to reject this. Hanacha Kamar. Right. We're going to say, can you really use this as a proof? Shani Hanacha Delo Efshar. Right. Because here it's impossible. You have to put things on top of each other. Right. Like that's just the way things have to be stored. You can't not sometimes place things on top of each other. So this is sort of allowed out of necessity. Right. Right. But if you say so, right, you know. Do we, you, you, you have to have one on top of each other. One needs to be on top of its front. So when there's no other possibility, it's going to be permitted. Right here too, so it's impossible, right? You, 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 you have to place these scrolls on top of each other. It's allowed. So in other words, what we're going to say is the, the selling isn't something that you necessarily have to do. So now they're going to have another solution. So I'm not going to read this whole thing, but they're basically going to sort of go through they have a few more that they that that they have here. Um, and I think it's interesting to see sort of how they're trying to argue this out. I'm not going to go through the whole argument. I just wanted to go through sort of three of them. But it's sort of, you know, basically saying here we have a question. Can we prove it through other Tanaitic teachings? And they're basically just going to go through one by one and see, does this make sense? Does it support one of the hypotheses that we had? one of the opinions we have, or does it not support it? And this is really sort of what the Gemara is sort of trying to do here, you know, is that we have a question, how can we figure out how to answer it? What proofs can we bring? 
I just want to bring up two other things. There are two other things that's interesting amongst the discussion that comes here. One is, is the idea of selling a Torah scroll in order to marry your daughter off. And the other one is, is that if somebody sells a daughter into slavery, it's also compared to somebody who sells a Torah scroll, right, in order to have food, bracha will not be brought to them. In other words, there are some things that we just can't even get to. I, you know, again, I, I find it interesting that within this discussion, sort of two of the examples that are brought of either one of the, you know, best things that you could do or one of the lowest things that you could do, have how we treat our daughters, right? Or right, how we treat our daughters, right? That it would be okay um, to, uh, it, it would be okay basically uh, you know, to do what you need to do in order to, uh, sorry, it, it's not to sell it to daughter, but in other words, you can sell a Torah scroll in order to get married, right? That would be considered to be okay. And it would not be okay to sell your daughter into slavery uh, in order to have food. I, you know, it's just striking to me as the modern learner, right? That like, these are sort of the examples. I, I, I think what this shows is sort of the economic, you know, the economics of sort of supporting women or feeding women or supporting a household, uh, you know, this would certainly be a passage that I think would be used if we were to undertake, you know, sort of to explore sort of a feminist reading, uh, you know, of the Gemara itself. It's interesting that these are the examples that are used to sort of explain the economics sometimes of when a torso could be sold or could not be sold. So I want to relate to this example of selling your daughter for food as like bizarre and ancient and simply impossible. And yet there was, uh, you know, a really, I don't know, expose, not an expose. It was a like a, I don't know, human interest piece, right, about what was going on in Afghanistan after the U.S. pulled out. And a good number of interviews were done with families where what they were doing was selling their children marrying off their children it, like a 12 year old or even younger to you know comparatively older men and so that the food that the family then could buy food and i feel like it's the biggest travesty but i'm right. not sure what you're supposed to, like what is that family that has no food supposed to do meaning not that we're going to solve this on the podcast but like the gamar's claim of like sell a safer over to get married i think it really is a a philosophical statement about values, right? And I think that this idea of, like, of course you would never sell your daughter to get to get food, except for that they are otherwise their position is that they will starve to death. Now what? You know, I, I it's just impossible, right? So it's depressing on the one hand because you see like ein chadash takadash like this type of economics with particularly female children has always existed. And it's interesting to see the Gemara sort of take that value stance to be like, that's something we're just not allowed to do. It doesn't offer a solution, but yeah. it, it sort of says like, you don't get bracha from that. It doesn't say it's a sore, but it's like no good is basically going to come of that. But I think we all recognize the value in saying, yeah, you can sell a safer Torah, you know, in order to get married. I stand corrected before I said it was selling your daughter. I, I apologize. I just, I was reading outside of the DAP. Um, so, but, you know, I think it, again, it, it, it says something about, the economics and then women, there was an economics around women, which unfortunately we still see in parts of the world today. Yeah. And I think it's worth noting that the, I don't know what the average income type of thing of the, in the time of Chazal, yeah, I know there are different eras in different places, but for the most part, we're talking about 
certainly, you know, in the in the land of Israel, all the Tanayim, so to speak, it was poverty. It was not, I, you know, I don't know to what extent people were in the same abject poverty that we're seeing now in Afghanistan, but it's still, these were not wealthy people. And to the point that when we have wealthy rabbis, we're told, you know, so-and-so was wealthy. Okay, I'm going to continue to Ahmed Bet, where we have two Mishnayot, so we're really moving on with the topic and also continuing with the topic at the same time in terms of what can you sell and not sell. So we're talking about um, holy objects still, right? Sanctity, that's the real topic here. And you're, the point is that you're not allowed to sell something that belongs to the many, meaning the many, meaning the community. You're, Dana, you mentioned this yesterday, I think, that we're talking about communal property here. You can't sell communal property to an individual, right? Even if it's going to be the, the position here is that even if you're using the same object for the same communal purpose, but now it's held by an individual, that is not considered um, an increase in Kedusha or even just a, a lateral move. It's actually considered the idea that something is owned by an individual being a lesser Kedusha is a really interesting comment, I think. Divri Rebbe Mayer, that's his opinion. Abarulo, they asked him, in Cain, af they said, well, if that's the case, I mean, if you're concerned about this, that that's going to count as a reduction of sanctity, then it should also be that you cannot sell something from a large town to a small town, meaning because you'll have fewer people involved in the in the use or the ownership of that item. And Rabbi Mayer doesn't answer in, in the Mishnah, right? There's no discussion of his position here. So, of course, the Gemara is going to discuss that. The Gemara likes what Rabbanan said, meaning if you're talking about, if you're making it into a numbers game, Rebbe Mayer, right, that's the point, then then you, then you there's no end to the degree of which you can say, well, you have more people here and fewer people there. Rebbe Mayer, the Rebbe Mayer, oh, so now the Gemara gives him a chance to answer, so to speak. He says the difference is not in the numbers. It's not about smaller to larger. I mean, larger to smaller. It's a. It's not the fact that you have fewer people in the one person as compared to the many. It's that you have the ownership of one person. That a yachid, as com- an individual, as compared to the rabim, the the many that represents the community, is a distinction between sanctity and not, not sanctity. Meaning, one person alone is not yet uh, a holy group, so to speak. And we've seen this elsewhere. The idea of um, we know this from, let's say, I think from Perkei Avot, right? Like, or from Masach Brachot also, when we talked about when you have, when you come to sit down together to a meal, how many people do you have there where you then say, oh, and now the Shekhinah is, is present there. And it's not with an individual, right? So this is a, it's an interesting, uh, you know, I, I don't think it's necessarily um, elevate, it's elevating the community over the individual with regard to this statement about Kedusha. I don't think it's, you know, I don't think it's um praise um without any strings attached, right? The point of it is really about sanctity and not simply about numbers. Okay. Um, we go on now to the next Mishnah, and we're going back to this discussion of selling a shul. So when they sell a shul, according to Rabbi Meir, there has to be a stipulation that if the sellers want to buy it back, they have to be able to get it back. 
which of course, I don't know, Jordana, I haven't done a lot of buying and selling of property, real estate, but it seems that that is not how this works, right? You don't sell things with a condition that I can get it back when I want to. The rabbis say you could sell a shul as a permanent sale for whatever usage, except for four things, meaning Rabbanon are much more expansive in their willingness and it's much more practical to what the shul could be sold for, but they do have a stipulation of four things that it should, you should not sell a shul for these four, for future purposes. So, what are these four things? The first is a bathhouse. A bathhouse was, it's not just a public pool, it's really where they would go to, to bathe, to shower, so to speak, right? So people there would be in states of undress, and that's considered inappropriate as a, an affront, so to speak, for the shul that it used to be. Second, uh, borsiki is a tannery, and a tannery has a terrible, terrible smell which is also considered an affront to the sanctity that was in the shul. For tvila, for immersion, that's a mikvah purpose, right? But again, the concern is people standing around undressed or and so on. And then lastly, lebeta mayim is a very elegant way of saying a bathroom, right? Which I think that's kind of a self-explanatory. You don't take the shul and then you're going to reconfigure it to be a bathroom. This, of course, in a time where there's no interplumbing, where the physical structure of the shul presumably also would have a bathroom inside. No, no, this is where that was not the case, and this would be the reconfiguration. So Rebihud is even more, I would say, more practical or more, you know, down to earth about what might have to happen. They sell the shul for the purpose of being a chatzer. Let it be a courtyard. And then the buyer gets to do whatever he wants, right? Meaning this is, so on the one hand, Rabbi Huda allowed, he, he'll, he acknowledges that this is something that can happen. And it's also, I suppose, the loophole, right? Meaning if Rabbanan say, don't sell it for these four purposes, and you say, okay, I'm not selling it for those four purposes, I'm selling it for it to be a courtyard. So you sell it to be a courtyard. But then the buyer, because he's a buyer, he can do whatever he wants with it. He'll do whatever he wants with it. Um, which I think speaks to exactly the challenge of, you know, wanting to preserve the sanctity of a place after you are no longer the dominant people of that place. It gets a little bit messy in exactly this way uh, because the, ne- the newcomers could do whatever they want and will, you know. So I feel like Rabbi Huda's position here, um, like I would say Rabbi Mayer is the most idealistic and isn't that wonderful. And then I think Rabbi Huda's is, as I said, the most practical because, because, Tachlis, like that's really what's going to happen in terms of, you know, when you are no longer there, you don't get to have dibs on talking about what's going to be there. As as sad as that may be. So I yeah, I love this little machlokas here because it's like, how do we want the world to be? How is the world practically going to be? And I think this shows like two different mindsets sometimes of like what the standard of halacha should be. Yes, I think that's. I think that there's truth to that, and I would even say the standard of halacha can be different in different from different people, depending on who they are. Sure, but also different circumstances. Meaning, if you are, um, if you have the option, if you were able to do what Rabbi Meir recommends, then do it. You know, and then if you can't, like, so it, always we talk about the Gemara preserving, you know, minority opinions. Sometimes those minority opinions need to get called into action because. There's no alternative. And I feel like 
the fact that we've got alternative, I mean, they're disagreeing. They're not giving options. I don't mean it that the, the Tanayim are not presenting options, but when when somebody then would come from a halachic point of view and what are they supposed to do? And of course, the Gemara discusses this further and Rishonim and so on discuss it much further. But the at the end of the day, the range of possible possible action is present in the Mishnah in this disagreement. And then I would say that there are circumstances where maybe you would have to resort to Rebbe, Mayer's, uh, Rebbe Yehuda's approach, but there might be other circumstances where you could function in a more ideal plane. Right. So I think also having both of those options is part of the reason why to preserve both of those opinions. Well, that's our top discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this stuff on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.